0: you need to build a strategy on why you wanna buy what you buy, why you would sell it before you buy it, and make it be something about the company, not something about the price. That's how Warren Buffett has made his profits. If you make it about the price, then you're divorcing yourself from the reality that you're owning something. It's just a game. Don't play the market, be a part of the marketplace. Once more unto the preach, dear friend. I'm not sure if I said breach or preach this time. Else close the wall up with our English dead. feel like we're preaching a little bit about market manipulation and stuff. This is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have Jeff McClure. Uh, we are together, the personal wealth coach and bald and also bearded.
1: This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything. neither, Neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can.
0: The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So, prepare to be educated. Um, we were talking about payments for order flow uh, last hour at the end of the hour, and I wanted to to hit that again. You have something to say, though. Well, I want to make it very simple.
1: There's a lot of complexities to this. and There's a lot of comples- complexities to the options and the way they're done. But right now, for example, if you go to Robinhood and you buy GameStop or whatever, and Robinhood does not trade that stock on the New York Stock Exchange. They send it f- to Citadel or one of the other uh, marketing, one of the other companies that does this called matching companies. The trade actually goes on at Citadel, and when you buy it, let's just say you buy a stock at hundred dollars, Citadel actually paid maybe ninety nine dollars and sixty cents for that stock, and they sell it to you at hundred dollars. They made forty cents on the trade. And since Citadel does in Robinhood is doing a phenomenal number of trades, they make a tremendous amount of money at 40 cents a trade. You don't see a commission of 40 cents a trade, but it's happening anyway because there's a spread between buy and sell prices on stocks.
0: Yeah. Um, this, what, maybe three weeks ago, we had a question about why somebody would spend many, many millions or billions of dollars to do, uh, ultra fast trading. Well, this is why. This is one of the reasons why. If, if you have money and, and you're ready to invest it and you look at a stock on Robinhood, there's no commission on that stock. That means that the quote that you're being quoted on the price has a little extra kicker in it that goes to Citadel or whoever is closing that trade because they're going to buy it so that they can sell it to you. Otherwise, Robinhood would have to go out and find a seller. Well, Citadel's already spent lots and lots of money on its quick ability to go out there in a in a very tiny fraction of a second and buy a stock wherever it might be. They've built networks with other market makers so that they can scoop it up fast and then turn around and sell it to you with an absolutely known profit on that trade. Actually, Citadel's taking it. Citadel originally
1: started trading on the New York Stock Exchange, and they set up microwave towers and did all things to get quickly onto the new york stock exchange to buy and sell stocks then they realized they could buy and sell stocks themselves in other words you go to buy a share of whatever you want to buy citadel already holds that share or has a seller for that share and makes and match right there at citadel which is very very fast and basically citadel and the other companies that do this now actually have a higher stock volume every
0: day than than the new york stock exchange
1: or the nasdaq
0: Yeah. What what Citadel did was it, in essence, made another NASDAQ. Uh, NASDAQ was originally an acronym. It's not an acronym anymore. It was National Association of Securities Dealers Quotes, which basically was just a network of brokers that were saying, I'll sell it for this and I'll buy it for that. And that was being done electronically. Well, Citadel did that as well on their own, only it's bigger than the magnitude of trade, the volume of trade on the New York Stock Exchange on any given day.
1: And what happens is Citadel then says to Robinhood, we will pay you so much per trade because we know we're going to make, if we're going to make 40 cents a trade, we'll pay you 15 cents a trade, which is the commission in essence, to Robinhood. If you funnel the trades through us rather than sending them to the New York Stock Exchange.
0: So back to the original question, So now now we've got what's happening here. This is a normal process. It's how Robinhood can go commission-free on its trading. They're getting paid. And people know they're getting paid somehow, but they really don't understand it. Okay, so that's one of the ways that a big broker-dealer gets paid, payment for order flow. Because the order flow goes to someone and the broker-dealer gets paid for it. Robinhood is the broker-dealer. Okay, or some semblance of the broker-dealer. There's actually two entities. One's a broker and one's a dealer we're just going to lump them together for the fun of it. Okay. Um, the question that John sent in was what happens if that goes away? If it's if it's re-implemented where they where they don't allow payment for order flow. Uh, what will that what's the impact on the market? Well, expect to see commissions back on your trades. Because they're still a for-profit company. E-Trade did not suddenly become not-for-profit. TD Ameritrade didn't just simply say, hey, we don't need to make money anymore. So the same disruption that occurred when Robinhood stepped up and said, hey, we're gonna get our money this way instead of that way, it looks better to our customers. They look at, at the trade, which by the way, the trades at that point that they started this were about 45 cents a trade. So it actually did bring down the cost of trading because now it's somewhere around 40 cents a trade. You just can't see it anymore. If that goes away, you expect to see that come back and you maybe even expect to see prices go up on how much it costs to do in a trade.
1: Actually, this is going on in the
0: grocery store too.
1: Oh yeah. When you buy a can of soup, for example, and it's Campbell's soup, let's say you buy a can of Campbell's soup. There's no commission on that. There's just a price. Right. But there's also a spread between what the, grocery store paid for the Campbell soup and what you're paying for the Campbell soup, the grocery store paid a little less, not much. They paid a little less, but that's not their major source of profit. In most cases, the grocery store's major source of profit isn't from that spread. It is from the fact that Campbell's pays them
0: for shelf space. Yeah. It's like real estate rental. And that's, that's payment for order flow in effect. Yeah. It's the same thing. And it's a stabilizing factor on the market. If Citadel has paid Robinhood for the order flows, they want to make a profit on that. So they want to do good business for Robinhood. Or at least that's the theory. I'm using specific names. We could completely take Robinhood out and completely take Citadel out and use generic names. I think it's easier to understand when you've got some specifics. That that whole concept is devised to make the market run smoother. When Robinhood had to stop trading on GameStop, and that made big news everywhere, Elon Musk got into it and said, why did you do that? Well, the reason is because all of the big broker dealers said this is not an orderly flow of business. Between an order to buy and the actual execution of that order, the, the price of the stock may have moved drastically which could cause the customers to to get burned, which means they won't do any more business in the future. And you've got to remember, these guys aren't getting, they, they may have a hedge fund or two that they owned, that they own. But even that stuff, their, their majority of pay is on the management fee, not on the growth. And when you're talking about, losing a customer because they've been burned in the market, that's more important to them. That's part of the reason why we have the regulations that we have is that people that get burned in the market are reluctant to get back in. And this, GameStop is a great example. On top of that, Robinhood allowed a lot more borrowing to buy stuff and is allowing a lot more. Their most recent regulatory filings, and I got this from uh, the Guardian and Financial Times, both British papers, I don't know, but they're looking at this because it's a it's world news. They're about four the the customer at Robinhood is about fourteen times more likely to default on their margin debt than the same customer rating at e trade or TD Ameritrade. Which means that these are people that don't really understand margin investing, don't really understand borrowing very well here. 14 times more likely. So Robinhood had to shut down trading in GameStop because a lot of their customers were trying to buy GameStop on margin. They were borrowing money to buy a stock that was skyrocketing so that they could supercharge their returns or something. It supercharges the risk, that's for sure. So the, the people you know, again, we're talking about Robinhood isn't actually doing the trade. They're facilitating the trade, but the folks at Citadel are like, hey, guys, if you're going to do that on margin, you need to back up that your customers aren't going to default because we'll be left holding them back. So you need to come up with some extra cash as collateral, you yourself, Robinhood. So you've probably seen the, the headlines that Robinhood's raised $3.4 billion in cash by tapping its different credit lines. So, protect the, to protect the debt solubility, the, the solvency of the customers, Robinhood went into a lot of debt to cover them S- because Citadel doesn't know whose stock they're buying and selling. They don't know if it's Joe Bob from Texas or uh, Eleanor from Connecticut. They just know it's a Robinhood trade. They don't know what the, what the creditworthiness of the actual customer is. They're looking at Robinhood and saying, hey, you're taking on a lot of debt. I need to see some cash that you can come back and buy this if the, if the market goes the wrong way and, and you wind up needing to pay us back for what you're, what, what you're buying. So that's what's going on. And man, that, that's a convoluted mess, but it's really not that different from the grocery store. GameStop the, is such a small portion of the market moves, but it's just been a very energetic discussion in, in all the forums in media and in the on the web. Probably can I change the subject? Absolutely.
1: The Labor Department came out with a new unemployment rate this week and it didn't make a lot of headlines for a very good reason, but they did come out with a new one, six point three percent. It was six point seven last month. So that sounds like things are getting better, except for the fact that if you read down through the report, the notes in the report say that that change, that 0.5% change, represents primarily people dropping out of the labor market because they can't find a job. They're no longer looking. If you're not looking for work, you're not considered unemployed. So we really didn't change much. We still have about 10 million people who who are looking for work in the United States, which is a lot of people. Uh, compared with, for example, about 2 million people that were looking for work before the pandemic hit. So we've got we've definitely got an unemployment problem. Theoretically, U.S. employers added 49,000 jobs in January. Now, this is after losing 237,000 jobs in December. So it sounds like, well, things are turning around. The problem is about 81,000 jobs were temporary hires, the new jobs. And temporary hires means I'm going to hire you, but I'm going to keep you for 30 days or 60 days, and that's it, and then you're gone. So we still have a problem in the labor area, and it's going to remain there as long as the pandemic remains in place. Uh, the, the difficulty is the restaurant workers and other people like that are obviously out of work. The surprising thing about the labor report was that one of the top several Areas where people lose or losing jobs, in other words, people getting laid off, and we had about eight hundred thousand people again laid off this week, this last week, compared with about two hundred thousand before the pandemic. That's a lot of people getting laid off, and, and and the surprising thing to me, at least, is that in manufacturing and warehousing is two of the larger areas where people are getting laid off. I expected restaurants, I expected a lot of things, but manufacturing is rising. We've had an uh, increase in output in, de- in December of 1.1% in manufacturing output while manufacturers are laying people off, which it sounds really weird. How, if they're laying people off, how can you have an output in, uh, difference in manufacturing like that? The answer was that in, uh, in the fourth quarter, output for manufacturing increased 11.2% while the hours work increased 8%. Now, that sounds like a bunch of technical geeky stuff, but what it boils down to is manufacturing is producing more goods with fewer people, fewer hours because they're laying people off. Now, it would be even bigger except for the fact that people they're keeping, they're raising the pay on, which is why the pay seems to be going up across the board. How, how is that happening? It's not happening because they're sending things to uh, China because that wouldn't count in the manufacturing output in the United States. It's happening because they're automating. They're they're hire, they're, they're hiring robots, in effect. And they don't have to pay them working compensation, and they don't get COVID, and they keep working steadily now. That, and the people who are still working there, in many cases, are tending to the robots, which brings me, if I could, to another subject similar. Well, uh,
0: yeah, I've got one that kind of ties into that too. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Amazon is one of the biggest hires; it literally has millions of employees now, and many, many, many of those employees work in warehouses shuffling stuff around. But Amazon is making a huge investment in automating those warehouses. So those jobs are in essence temporary. It's just something to keep an eye on as we move forward. And their new CEO in Amazon is focused on that area, focused hard on that area that he wants to automate the warehouses. They they put in new warehouses all across the country and they're hiring people because you can hire people quicker to move boxes around than you can put in, uh, and, and they're less expensive to hire in the front end But you can hire them and get them working fairly quickly, whereas it takes a while to automate a warehouse. But that's what they're doing. They're automating their warehouses. So what we're going to what it looks like. We've got a trend going in the economy that's outside of the pandemic that we're going to see fewer and fewer low skilled workers find jobs because more and more of that will be
0: automated. This is underlying that as well. There is a a move right now to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Which, even when you adjust for inflation, that's the highest wage per hour that the United States has ever seen. Um, when in the 1970s, at the end of the 1970s, if we adjust for inflation, the minimum wage got up to about $12.50. Now, $15 an hour minimum wage did, we saw this already occur on the West Coast. So Portland was a great example of that. As a city, they implemented it. And then Washington and California implemented it. Uh, I think Oregon, too. I'd have to look at that. I can't remember. So pretty much the West Coast is a $15 an hour minimum wage, which makes sense because the cost of living there is a lot higher. But even so, what happened changed the way you order at McDonald's everywhere the kiosk stations were tested in San Francisco after the minimum wage jumped up. So the reality is that the effort, this is like the unintended consequences, the effort to pay lower skilled people more money causes for-profit enterprises to automate or to outsource. I mean, that just, because they have to remain competitive on the selling market. Uh, Are you going to buy a $12 Big Mac? Well, you have to be pretty hungry. So they say, all right, it may be $15 an hour, but to pay that wage, we're going to have to raise the prices. But if we raise the prices and nobody else raises the prices, we're going to go out of business. So this concept of the minimum wage hike What this, I'll tell you this right off. What it won't do is cause massive runaway inflation, because people say this is going to cause inflation. There's other things that will cause inflation. That's not it. Uh, Why won't that cause inflation? Because automation's going to kick in hard. This is the low-skilled area. The low-skilled area is what the vast majority of jobs that have still been that are still gone from the economy are gone in the low-skilled. Area because companies couldn't afford to pay the wage that was there before. If you raise it, it means that the front end of this automation is pretty expensive. But the more people that buy into it that say, hey, I have to get a kiosk in my Ace Hardware or in my uh, Home Depot, I mean, you've got your self checkout, but those are difficult to use. As that technology gets more investment, Because the minimum wage rises, we're going to have fewer and fewer low skill jobs. The more low skill it is, is can you be more low? The lower, the lower the skill requirement, the more likely it is that that gets replaced. Because that's how disruptions generally occur. It doesn't start at the top end. Those are the hardest things to automate. I mean, how do you automate uh, operations in in Uh, surgery. You can do it and they're working toward it, but that's a lot harder to go to than to automate a checkout or uh, ordering a hamburger. So just expect more automation in the future. This is not a a negative or a positive on the minimum wage. We've never seen a minimum wage this high, so we actually don't know what would happen to the economy. It would probably be a, a downward push on profitability for the service industry, which just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense right now. The service industry is already taking it right on the chin there. That was my tangent on, on automation for you.
1: It's in theory, raising the minimum wage causes unemployment to go up. The congressional budget office projected it the economists projected all the time. It's funny though, when you go actually look at the studies And there were some done in Florida and there were some done in several places where the local minimum wage was raised. They did not see an increase in unemployment. Now, I don't know the rationale behind that. I don't understand it completely. But what they found was that despite the fact that there was predicted, it was predicted that there would be in each case an increase in unemployment if you raise the minimum wage. You know, these weren't the fifteen dollars, but the raises in minimum wage in every study that's been done so far, every actual study where you actually look at it on the ground, employment actually increased. And the reason the, the hype the hypothesis, not the not the reason, but at least the, the guess at why employment did not go down is if, if you raise now there's obviously a point where if you raise it you're gonna cause more unemployment. But if you raise let's say a person working in a convenience store who's getting seven dollars an hour, you raise them to fifteen dollars an hour. He has more money to spend, and since he's at the low end of the income spectrum, he tends to respend that money very quickly, which causes the economy to pick up, which causes more people to be employed. That's right. just the, that's what they found from the papers.
0: Uh, and when it would it so a fifteen dollar an hour, that's going to take a while to get there under any of the proposals. Minimum time is five years, I think. I need to look at that again. But th- they're talking about moving it. And that's that would be too fast, in my opinion. That will cause shockwaves in the marketplace. But they did it in Portland overnight. It was all right. Today is no longer the old way. It is now $15 an hour. And that led to shockwaves. We did see unemployment in the restaurant industry spike up after that. Uh, now, they hired them back, but if you go and eat in, in Portland, all the restaurant prices are higher. So that's just part of living in Portland. You got a uh, a localized inflationary spike uh, in, in the low end of food. High end market for restaurants, the prices didn't move at all. Well, they weren't getting minimum wage. The danger for inflation comes in unionized price uh, linking to the minimum wage. If you say you get your uh, 12% increase uh, of minimum wage uh, every three years or every two years or whatever, that can cause some inflation. And then In the late 1970s, the inflationary spiral had a lot to do with the fact that we had absolutely no competition with the rest of the world. The closest competition we had was Japan and their products were universally laughed at as being low-quality junk. Um, this, this whole concept that they could ever compete with us on quality, and it's very similar to what people have said for years about Chinese products, but if you look at your iPhone, that's a Chinese product now. I mean, it was made there. It's a high-quality product. So they've educated themselves. Where the inflation came from in the 1970s is we didn't have any labor competition at all. If we raised our labor prices, it had to come through in the prices, and the prices of the things you were buying or selling to pay those wages. And so we had things like uh, cars that were designed to fail as after three to five years, so that you would go back and buy another one. This was real. This, I mean, it was part of just business planning because you had to pay the wages. Well, once the Japanese came into the market and the Europeans came back into the market hard and Volvo became a quality car and and Toyota became quality cars and then there had to be some structural shifts in the way we pay people at the union scale. And that took place with the bankruptcy of General Motors. So there are dangers of inflation. There's dangers of unemployment. We're going to have to take a look at this and, and see what happens. So, if it's going to happen and it's going to get passed, so those are big ifs. But if they are, then we need to look at what are the potential impacts? What are the ways that people can profit from this, including low skilled people? If you're a low skilled person listening to this program, you're strange. Most low skilled people do not listen to economics podcasts or economics radio programs. Go get some skills. You can do it. Uh, get some good skills and you'll get good pay. Uh, the problem with being low skilled is you're not in demand. So how do you go and do that? Well, there's lots of ways of doing it online. Uh, I learned to program C, several C languages and Visual Basic for applications online. And it didn't take me a huge amount of time. Now, I did have to pay some money for it. I paid $15 a month and there's lots of, the Skillshare is a good one. Uh, There's a whole bunch of them out there that have a very low subscription cost. And if you can do that, then you won't be low skilled anymore. Uh, That's, that is my, that's my recourse to this. And and if, if uh, you would like to take the, the conversation to another location, that's fine with me.
1: Well, it really boils down to the fact that we're going through a change that is very, very similar to the change we went through 100 years ago. Low-skilled people normally operated behind animals, or they did manual labor in the fields and the agriculture. And it took, for instance, if you had a pretty good-sized farm, you might have 10 people working the farm. You might have three or four people working the farm. Today, that same-sized farm could easily be worked by one person using a tractor and equipment. And... That was, a, that was what, in the 1920s, caused a great deal of upset. An awful lot of agricultural workers were displaced. And there was an actual depression in the agricultural industry. During the 1920s, along, in the 1930s, it got worse. This is coming. For instance, if you're a truck driver, look, it, it, well, of course, most truck drivers are older, so it works out. They're having a lot of trouble finding younger truck drivers, and that makes good sense because it's a dead-end career. Why is it a dead-end career? Because you can see that billions and billions of dollars are being spent by Ford, General Motors, and everybody else to to create self-driving trucks. Once the self-driving trucks get out there, you'll be about as uh, useful as the people who rode in the caboose on the trains, the conductors and the brakemen. who used to have steady jobs working for the railroads, and now the caboose is no longer there, and they're not doing it. Now there's a person driving the train, and that's pretty much it.
0: And some of the trains are driverless at this point.
1: Yep. But those are small commuter trains. I'm talking about we need to have a uh, big freight train going across the right. country, a minimum of five people on that train. Yeah. And now there's one. And that's just coming in the truck industry. It's coming in a lot. Of, you, need, you need basically look around if you're in a position where you're going to have a career in front of you and say, could I be replaced by a computer? And the answer is, uh if the answer is yes you probably will be replaced by a computer in the 2020s at some point so you need to develop a skill that doesn't require you that doesn't have you being replaced by a computer one of the easiest ways but it isn't easy one of the biggest demand is for people technical workers who repair the things that are replacing jobs yeah who repair medical equipment who repair uh technical equipment and you have to have an education to do that Then. There's some good schools to get that, but it is it does require taking time off to do it. And it ta- it requires being certified to do it. And a lot of people don't have that and they're having that's the people who are having trouble finding work. I, I even go to the point of saying, you know, restaurant work was was consistent. It's always good entry work, uh waiters and so on. But if we can see that the waiters are gradually being replaced. I don't think in high-end restaurants we are going to see a lot of waiters replaced because people like the personal service. But it's coming.
0: Yeah. It's not that far away from getting a subway from a machine. Getting your subway sandwich, go in and you'll get it from a machine. It's not that far away from getting your McDonald's Happy Meal put together by a machine. It's just about there already. Uh, And that's it's close enough that that we can see it's going to happen this decade. And I heard um I heard a truck driver this last week say that's never going to happen. They're you know they've been spending money on this for years and look there there's no model that anybody's going to go out and buy right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my answer to that is all the companies that a lot of the companies vast majority of the companies that are spending the money on this are for-profit enterprises. They're not doing it to waste money. They expect it to be the way they do business in the future. And if they're willing to put up lots of billions of dollars to do it, they're serious about it. That They don't want that money to be wasted or they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to get fired if they spent that money. So do you think the CEO of General Motors wants to lose his job? I, I don't. <laughs> There's a lot of pay there. So I would put that job security above your own when it comes to, will you be driving a truck in 20 years? I think it may be illegal for a human to drive a freight truck in 25 years. Well, maybe
1: local delivery will still be in effect, but I don't think, that. and the other thing is when those trucks get to their end of their road, because trucks now are capable of driving on the interstates and pulling into a warehouse area, for unloading where it can be transferred to smaller trucks for delivery. And that's actually happened already. Uh, it's kind of like if, when you were, if you were working on a farm behind a plow and you used to plow on the farm with a mule and you had steady employment, you said this is nobody can replace this because there's no machine that can do this. You saw the model T Ford come along and say that thing couldn't possibly pull a plow. It couldn't possibly do the job. Well, you didn't take into account that a tractor can plow the entire field that it takes you a week to plow can plow in less than a day.
0: Uh, I was I, I just last week read you and a advertisement from uh, nineteen sixteen in a newspaper about buying tractors, and it was written directly to the farmers, and it was give yourself an eight hour day. And that that was the statement. Is that? That was unheard of. How do you work eight hours as a farmer? You don't work eight hours. You work from as as soon as it's light to as as soon as it's dark, you're doing work outside. And while it's dark, you're inside working. Uh, And this was a Fordson tractor. And it was one of the early ones. It was a big, uh, big line for a while. But in the ad, it said, does eight times the work of a single person. This was an early model tractor because it only drove at about five miles an hour. But within five years, there were tractors that were replacing 20 workers per tractor. And it drove a lot faster than five miles an hour. So just know this isn't the first time it's happened. And the Great Depression was the result of the last time because we didn't, re-educate our population we didn't and that man that sounds like a uh, 1982 the book let's re-educate the population we we didn't teach new and higher skills in the in the depression all of our actions were in coming up with how do we get these people that are that only know how to work behind a plow uh, to work again let's get them full employment and what we did is we gave them shovels and said, let's go do the Civilian Conservation Corps, go uh, build these monuments and make trails across over here. And it didn't teach them any new skills. So as soon as the money wasn't there to continue monument trails, they'd be out of jobs again. If the GI Bill, on the other hand, came after service to the country, uh, they got paid while they were doing it, but they had to risk their lives, in some case more than risk their lives, then coming back from World War II, they had the GI Bill, which was a retooling of the brain to go from walking behind a mule to operating high machinery. So our focus needs to be in that area, and this is why I say there's a lot of things online. Don't wait for the government to do it for you. Please go out. Uh, what is the name of that? Uh, I'll have to come up with it and say it next week. Um, the name of the online service I used that uh, it's like Skillshare is today. And I am sure it's still around. It's like Amy, it's not Amy's. It's, it's a female name. I can't think of it right now. I had it on my favorites, So I, did.
1: well, I think it's, it's also very, very good to, to consider someplace like Texas state technical college. Right. A good place to go and get a skill and, Listen to the counselors there about the skills that are going to be needed for the next 20 years as opposed to the ones that are needed immediately today.
0: Right. And they're teaching things like how to operate a CNC, how to operate heavy equipment in a manufacturing facility, how to repair that stuff. That stuff that's going to take a long time for some kind of a robot to come along to repair the other robots. Uh, that's going to require a human to do for a long time. And that, those jobs are going to be in high demand, extremely high demand. You know, we have a question from John. We do. I haven't checked. Yes, we do.
1: Globalization and war. And the point he asked the question, with increased globalization with countries like China dependent upon other countries so intensely, does that mean we couldn't have another war? Well, we can have a war, but it would have to be quite limited. In other words, if China were to declare war on Taiwan as an example,
0: they wouldn't, they wouldn't declare war. They would just say, this is still us attacking us. Everybody else, this is an internal matter.
1: The problem with that is that the United States would get involved and other people would get involved and there would be a war going on. And in, for example, their shipments from Africa would be interrupted. Almost certainly the United States Navy would interdict and at least put uh, a bear, uh, a blockade around China so that the raw materials couldn't get to them. And that would cause their economy in short order to collapse. They're fully aware of that, and they're fully aware of the fact that he can, the primary objective of China, and this is something to remember, is to keep everybody employed and happy. Right. They have uh, populations as large as the United States that wander around from job to job, and if they show up and they don't have a job, uh, having 300 million people mad and wandering around is a really bad idea if you want a stable country. So the wars in the sense of as we had in world war ii that kind of war is extremely unlikely now we could have wars with small countries uh as we've had off and on where the economy has already collapsed that's a serious problem but as far as a major war between major powers in the world it's unlikely at this point uh it would take an insane leader to do that i could i can actually see for example Russia invading the the Balkans or invading the uh, the the states up there that they claim that they should have as part of their country because they've got a lot of Russians in them. If they didn't think it would result in a conflict with the United States or with with NATO or China, or China, uh, but as far as a major war is concerned, we are so interdependent at this point in time yeah. that is.
0: Just, just just, to give an example, and this is something I said last week, and I said it about uh, General Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto's statement after Pearl Harbor, we've awoken the sleeping giant. When he's talking about the United States, and we attacked them, and now they're going to come, and the giant has awoken. He's going to come and get us. And I said, China is a sleeping giant. And uh, I wanted to, you, you know, you said something there that was really important. China is is really really short on raw resources they have a fantastic workforce they have they've been trained over the past several decades by by western people to create western items there are no longer simply western items they're global items the chinese are now making them as well and they're making them at close to the same quality in some cases the knockoffs aren't but When you why is Huawei why was Huawei the first one to come out with five G? Well, it's because they are now educated, they are now technically savvy, and they're doing the same things we are. They don't have the same level of innovation. That's a big thing because their intellectual property laws are not as strong, and they have almost no raw resources. They are short. They have no petroleum products. They have uh they they imported. 1.17 billion tons of iron ore in 2020 because they don't have any iron mines. We don't either anymore. I mean, we've got the places where we could go back to, but they don't even have the background layer of knowing that they have iron to fall back on in their own land. They have to buy it from other places and they're mostly getting that from Africa, which means if they went to war with us, we would stop their iron and they wouldn't be able to create war machines. That is why the
1: South China Sea is so important to them and why they put the Seven Dash line out there and they're taking reefs and turning them into islands and putting armed forces on them and laying claim to a big chunk of the South China Sea. Very frankly, there's a lot of oil under the South China Sea. It hasn't been exploited, but it's there. And they recognize the fact that they are very dependent upon oil and will be for a long time. And they realize they have to import it and it's very easily cut off. And, as a result, they are trying to lay claim to a chunk of ocean where there's a lot of oil. So if necessary, they can go drill the oil in the inside of China, in effect. Uh, there, there is a strategy in China to become self-dependent. Right. But it is very unlikely to work. That's the, the belt and road uh, project that they have is part of that same thing. Basically, to take countries that are near China that have raw materials and make them so dependent upon China that even in the time, even in time of war, they would still be available to draw material in. By the way, this is the same philosophy that got Japan into World War II. They don't have enough raw materials, they don't have any significant raw materials in Japan. So they they because they felt threatened, they went out and started conquering China and conquering in the South China Sea. With the purpose of securing areas where the raw materials were, so they wouldn't be capable of being cut off. So we have to manage this very carefully, and hopefully the people in in Washington are smart enough to do that.
0: Yeah, this this is if China understands a thing, it is supply chain, and they recognize that they are on they're the middle of the supply chain. They're the manufacturing part of the supply chain, and they still need customers to buy that stuff. And they still need to buy the raw materials. And if either of those two is shut off, they are not capable of subsisting on their own commerce. They are not a, a fully consumer-based uh, economy. And when we talk about, I've heard a lot of libertarians say, why are we, why are we a consumer-based? Because that doesn't make us dependent on other economies, if, if the majority of our economy is based on our own spending and our own manufacturing, our own stuff, then we're much less dependent on others when it comes to time of war. We're quite dependent on China for a lot of things, and they're quite dependent on us for a lot of things. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that makes us immune from war, though. Now, it doesn't make us immune from war, but
1: a major war like in World War II where the United States was able to declare war on, on Japan. We weren't importing much of anything from Japan at that point. We had an internally self-sufficient uh, economy, very little things did we need from the rest of the world.
0: And by the time we declared war on Japan, we were also declaring war on Germany. And Germany had been at war long enough that we, again, weren't importing a lot of stuff from Germany. We'd already put uh, sanctions on Germany for this is and that's and, Um, and so we simply didn't have a whole lot of stuff we were buying from them. So it's easy to go to war with people when you're not doing business with them. So the point is that
1: at this particular moment in time, it'd be very difficult to have a war for a major power in the world because the major power needs so many items from someplace else. We can have wars, but they'd be relatively little wars, which is like we've had since world war two localized wars against small countries. Um, where we didn't alienate the people we needed for supply. Now, the United States is also working, for example, on getting its economy. Uh, As a matter of fact, the president set up a commission to look at the critical items in our economy and where we, where we get them and find alternative sources in the United States, if possible, that we could fall back on in case they were cut off. The Chinese are doing the same thing. It's going on all over the world. But if you're going to have high growth in an economy, you buy from the cheapest source. And the cheapest source for many, many things is going to be someplace else. No matter which economy you're in, a lot of we export a tremendous amount of things that are high tech to China, and China's economy would not function without buying things from us. A simple fact is food. The uh, the Chinese like to eat pork; makes them really happy. And as their economy as their economy improves and their income improves, they eat more pork. Well, the problem is they don't grow enough soybeans. And don't have the capability of growing enough soybeans and still feeding their population to feed their hogs. So where do they get their soybeans? Mainly from the United States. So this is the way things are today. Now, if you see things going the other way, if you see a country that becomes tries to become totally self-sufficient, where they can declare war on somebody a major power and not have their economy devastated, that's when you start to worry. But so far, we haven't
0: actually seen that happen. We do. We've been talking a lot this hour. Uh, It's like we like to talk or something. Uh, If you would like to ask us a question during the break or after, uh, we have email addresses available, and we're waiting on some hardware to get in so that we can start taking phone calls. We've got this set up, we hope, in a way that'll work. Um, If you would like to email us questions about the last 10 minutes of the program, uh, Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie or The Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, and we'll be back on the other side of the. Welcome back to The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have. Jeff McClure. We've been talking about all kinds of things underpinning the marketplace and the economy. Um, would you like to take the next few minutes to talk about things people can do uh, to either in their own lives or educate themselves in their own uh, portfolio for finances? That's true now and every time.
1: Boy, there's a big subject to drop me on. I actually want to talk about the pandemic. Oh,
0: well, then if you'd like to talk about the pandemic, that is the massive gorilla, the 8 to 1,200 pound gorilla, depending on the scale used in the room, is the pandemic. We,
1: I talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the markets, but it's important to recognize where we are in this pandemic. Historically, global pandemics have come in three waves. The first wave in this case hit us in early in the year, early in 2020. We had a second wave that maxed out around July. And when we had a lot of shutdowns again, then things kind of slacked off again. And then the third wave has come. Now the third wave is traditionally you know, in history, the big one, the one that kills the most people, the one that uh, has the most spread of the disease. And we're in it right now. The good news is the number of new cases peaked about January 6th. And it's been slowly coming downhill now. It's still higher than it was at the top of the other two waves but it looks like we're on the backside of the third wave at this point. The number of hospitalizations has finally dropped back below about 180,000 in the United States, which is really good. And we're seeing the hospitalizations gradually drop off. We're seeing new hospitalizations drop off. The death rate is still climbing, or at least it's holding steady at about 4,000 a day. That's the 14-day moving average. So where are we in this thing? It looks like we're on the backside of the third wave. The, we'll probably accelerate the downhill slide as far as new cases and new hospitalizations and eventually deaths because of the vaccines that we're, that we're putting out in the economy. But it's still going to be a while before this thing is over. I would say, and I've said this from the beginning. Uh, I said this back when it first started in 2020, it'll probably be mid 2021 before it's over with. And I, when I say I over with, it won't be completely over with, but things will return pretty much back to normal by about the middle of this year. And it's just a matter of being patient. One of the things we've done, and this is something that I've noticed anecdotally, is more and more people are wearing masks. This is, And I know that there's people who object to wearing masks, say it doesn't do any good. But there's a host of studies out there now that show that when you have a number of people and people do wear masks, it does reduce the transmission. There's a, still a threat out there from the new variant of the disease, which is now in both new variants of the disease are now in the United States are spreading internally. The new variants are much more much more contagious, and they seem to have a higher death rate. But if we can if we can, because of the increased mask wearing, the increased care that people are taking of staying six feet apart, and the vaccines, I think the when the, when the new variant hits us, it should not cause a big increase in, in, new, in new cases or hospitalizations or deaths. So the end is in sight. We just have to be patient at this point. Right.
0: Um, I would add to that that people, there, there's advertisements all over the internet right now about dumping your cash and, and buying as much as you can Man, it's everywhere. Uh, It's like the ad that I see the most, dump your cash. PhD in finance says dump your cash. Um, What I would say about that is that is bunk. Uh, You need to have reserves. It doesn't matter if the market's doing well or poorly. Having reserves is the top priority, always. Making sure that you can meet a short-term emergency without borrowing or liquidating your assets means you need to have cash on hand. That means having a good bank account balance that you feel is comfortable. Uh, that doesn't change in a pandemic. People are more aware of it then. I hope that our habits are changing to make sure we have good savings on hand. When you're investing, don't jump in just because it's going up. Try to understand what you're buying. People are, are treating online trading like it's a video game. And they are removed from the fact that they are actually buying And interest, ownership, in companies that have employees that are trying to make a profit, that are doing things that they've been trying to do sometimes for many decades and sometimes relatively recently. They just see it as numbers. And if you buy it and you sell it, what are the consequences besides to yourself? That's not good long-term investing. You need to build a strategy on why you want to buy what you buy, why you would sell it before you buy it and make it be something about the company, not something about the price. That's how Warren Buffett has made his profits. If you make it about the price, then you're divorcing yourself from the reality that you're owning something. It's just a game. Don't play the market. Be a part of the marketplace. Um, keep your reserves up. And we're about out of time. If you would like to contact us off the air during the rest of the week, for the weekend, we've got voicemail, real live people during the weekend, weekdays. Uh, There's a local line at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can read our newsletters there, sign up for the newsletter. You can uh, download recordings of the radio program and podcasts going back lots of years uh you can email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com.